Okay, before you can understand how Bob's sister became the talk of the third grade and the big day that that led to that people still remember, I need to explain first that Bob's sister is a drawing. The teacher in this third grade class, Mr. Ablau, spotted it one day while teaching math. He saw one of the students, Antonio, working on a picture. I went over to him and said, put the picture away. I probably did that two or three times. And then the fourth time I went over and I just took the picture Mm -hmm. and and said, uh, pay attention, it's math class. And I put it on my desk. He came up right before recess and is like, can I have my picture back? And I was like, what is this picture of anyways? And he said, it's Bob's sister. And And I'm like, who's Bob's sister? Turns out Bob's sister is a minion, which um, I don't even think Bob's sister exists in the minion world. You're saying, um, you're saying the minion's like from, from the movie Despicable Me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he had just invented like a sister character for Bob? Yeah, apparently. Mr. Obab taped the drawing to the bookshelf behind his desk near a photo of a wolf that was already there. Because it was clear if Antonio kept the drawing, it would continue to be a distraction to him and a couple of his friends who at that point were the only ones in class who really cared about Bob's sister. And I was like, don't worry, she's not going anywhere. She'll be right here. Anytime you want to see her, she'll be behind me. Because the kids were into the picture of Bob's sister. Yeah, and I didn't really quite understand why. I never investigated why this was, picture was such a big deal. But yeah, they would talk about it. They would go up and look at it. And yeah, it was a thing. Why were you guys so excited about Bob's sister, do you think? I think it's because it was like another distraction in class that people could talk about. That's straightforward enough. This is Dylan, one of Antonio's friends, who was into Bob's sister from the start. Describe the drawing. It was just like an octopus, and then it had two eyes, and then tentacles coming out of it. I didn't realize Bob's sister was an octopus? Bob's sister was an octopus. But Bob's a minion. Well, it, it didn't really have anything to do with that. And was he referring to the minion, Bob? Or am I just, no, no, he was not. I see. Was it a good drawing? It was like an eight-year-old's okay drawing. Like, it wasn't amazing, but it was like you knew what it was. This whole question, is it an octopus? Is it a minion? I asked Antonio, who drew Bob's sister, about that. He tended to see Bob's sister as a Pac-Man ghost with big eyes. But he said, and I thought it was surprisingly mature for somebody in elementary school, he thought part of the appeal of Bob's sister was that it was open to interpretation. I, I really don't know what it is. It's, it's a thing. I don't know what it is. It, it's, it's lots of different things. You could think of it as a minion that looks weird. You could think of it as a fly guy with no legs. You could think of it as Pac-Man ghost with big eyes. If Bob's sister was different to everybody. We never went with one of them. We just, mm-hmm. like, we didn't say anything. Anyone could believe what they want. But the thing that was key to Bob's sister was, Bob's sister wasn't actually anyone's sister. His name was just Bob's sister, no space. That's really funny. <laughs> and we didn't come up with a gender either. So Bob's sister, gender unspecified, lived on the bookshelf near the photo of a wolf until one week when Mr. Ablau went on vacation and the kids had a substitute. When Mr. Ablau came back, Bob's sister was gone, banished, disappeared, and was all the kids wanted to talk about. This is the point where everybody in class gets very, very interested in Bob's sister. There's kind of all this speculation about, like, what happened to Bob's sister. Um, Was she stolen? Was she murdered? Um, (laughs) Did she die? And so I go and, you know, I look a little bit. I looked under the desk. I looked behind the bookshelf and... Did you ask the substitute? Um, I did, actually. He had no idea what I was talking about, which was good enough for me. Oh, really? For me, that makes him suspect number one. (laughs) Interesting. There's your guy. Do you not watch any crime drama at all? (laughs) There are all kinds of theories about what happened to Bob's sister. Antonio and Dylan said it was really fun to talk about various abductors, including animals from an alternate universe. But Dylan says the prime suspect for his classmates, that other picture on the bookshelf. They just decided that the wolf ate it because it was like, it was like right like above the wolf. Like the wolf was jealous or something. They didn't really know why. They just, that's what, that's what they said. Who said that? Basically everybody. I mean, he's a wolf. Yeah. 
The chatter about Bob's sister does not go away, which is funny, but also, you know, Mr. Oblau's got a curriculum to get through. And I'm kind of vaguely annoyed because, you know, there's a lot going on in a school day and I don't have much time to think about a picture of Bob's sister. But they're kind of pestering me about it. And then one other student... Dylan, actually. ...pipes in and says, can we have a funeral for Bob's sister? <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? And and they're like, well, she died. Something happened. Um, and I'm like, a funeral for Bob's sister picture. And I say yes. Probably just to get them to stop talking about Bob's sister. But also, this is the kind of teacher he is. He says sometimes it's smart to take some detours, follow things where they lead. And they're like, when? I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know when. Like, <laughs> I don't know when this funeral is going to happen. And they're like, when? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? We are going to have a funeral for Bob's sister. And so then finally, I'm like, after the recess on Friday. That was Monday. Rest of the week goes pretty normally. Mr. Rablau sort of hoped that they would forget about the funeral by the end of the week, but no way. They're murmuring about it, preparing for it, which he has no part of. The eight-year-olds are the ones organizing this and thinking it through. Finally, Friday arrives, the big day, the day of the funeral. Kids come back into the room from recess. They're pretty giddy and pretty excited. So finally I'm like, okay, game on, let's go. Funeral. I have no idea what what is about to transpire. All of a sudden, boom, the tables kind of move out of the way. The leader of the funeral comes up with the stool. Two other students bring two tables and grab the flowers. Apparently, a bunch of girls had been making posters. Mm -hmm. They write Bob's sister's funeral on the board. Dylan's the leader of the funeral, and he prepared a eulogy. So did his friend Theo. Dylan gets in front of the class, holding a microphone Mr. Rablau keeps in the room. The rest of the class is totally on the edge of their seats, just waiting for this kid to, to start the funeral. Like, it, paying more attention to him than they ever pay to me. They're just, like, <laughs> ready for it. Um, he starts out kind of ad-libbing about welcoming everyone, thanking everyone for coming to celebrate the life of Bob's sister. Now... How did you know what to say in a eulogy? We didn't. We just said, like, some things that sounded about right, like something that, like, that you might say at a funeral that might make someone cry. Do you have your eulogy there? Yeah. Take it out. Could you read it? Okay, one sec. And then it sort of, mine also says sort of back and forth, she and he, so, because I didn't really know. Bob's sister was a great person. People thought that Bob was just a drawing on a piece of paper, but I knew he was anything but that. But she is still in here. She made me think I could do things in school. If she was here today, she would say, keep on trying. That's really nice. It sounds like you were trying to be sort of inspiring. Yeah. Had you seen a eulogy in a movie or something that, that you knew nope, what to never. do? Whoa. The other eulogy that Theo wrote, was also really good. I just want to say something about this special person here, Bob's sister. How she was such a good friend to all the potatoes, and especially Mr. Potato Head. Um, potatoes were another fascination in Mr. Robles' class that year. What an honor it was to have her with us. God bless her. And then, from the back of the room, Mr. Robles, here's a boy crying. I would say almost wailing, but it was like a real cry. And at first I'm thinking... Oh, my God, now they're just turning this into a joke. And then I realized that he's actually seriously crying. Like, this is not a joke cry. Um, and I walk back I walk back there, and everyone kind of turns back. Everyone's looking at both of us. Um, and so I ask him, I'm like, what's wrong? What's going on? How, why, why are you crying? Uh, and he's like, it's because Bob's sister died. And I was like, it's not about anything else, maybe? Um, and he's like, no, it's Bob's sister's died, and it's just so sad. Mr. Blau thinks maybe it was really about his dog. The dog that boy had grown up with had died just two weeks before. His mom had sent an email to let him know. But Mr. Blau's really not sure. 
At eight, you're plenty old enough to catch a glimpse of what death means. And then I look up, and then the whole kind of feel of the classroom has changed. It's gone from kind of giddy excitement, this is a fun thing, to half the class is nervously laughing, and the other half looks like they're on the verge of tears. Like, there's about three girls that are, like, kind of really sad. And I was like, oh, no, what have I created? Like, this was this was reaching an emotional level that I actually had never experienced before. And I've been teaching for about 15 years. Um, and I had never felt kind of this, not that it was getting out of control, but it was it was leading to something that I didn't know how it was going to end, honestly. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Like, if three other kids start crying, I don't know how to handle the situation. Right. Like, I had never experienced kind of that in a classroom. It's so interesting. It's 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 like it's like they were playing around with I don't know like a, with a Ouija board and joking around, and suddenly they accidentally summoned a demon into the room. Yeah, in a way. And for me, that I was I was right there on the Ouija board with them. And so, and so this monster's in the room. You've unleashed this like really like kind of a primal force, like this grief, right? This yeah, grief, death. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, one of the really neat things about third grade is it's. I mean, there's a saying, you they stop uh, learning to read and are um, reading to learn. So it's like the, it's an age where their world gets a lot bigger. They kind of are experiencing real things. And I think a funeral is one of those things. Like they probably all heard of a funeral. They read them in books, but m- most of them probably hadn't been to one and didn't know what that felt like. And Mr. O'Brien felt responsible to help them through this new experience like he had lots of others that year. So he took control of the room, back from the kids, and addressed them all. I was like, well, funerals are kind of serious. Sometimes when you go to a funeral, it make, it's very sad because you're missing the person that's uh, moved on, and sometimes it reminds you of other people who have moved on. Um, and it's important to remember those people, and it's important to be sad. Um, And this is the end of the funeral. Which worked. Everybody snapped out of it. The demon left the room. Next was free time, which they all enjoy, and everything was fine. But at the end of the school year, when the class stood in a circle and each kid named something that they remembered and liked from third grade, a couple of the kids said Bob's sister's funeral. It was a moment for Mr. Obal, too. Sometimes, you know, you're joking around and it's all light and fun and trying something you've never done before and some bigger subterranean force gets unleashed. That's what our show's going to be about today. Those moments when you get a glimpse of all that feeling that's there, down below, hidden from sight. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one. Music of the night after 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 night. So when you go to a big theater, you see all the people who are on stage. They're brightly lit. They're visible to everybody. They are literally there to be seen. But then, just below them, down in front, there's the orchestra pit. And it seems straightforward enough what happens in there. Musicians play their instruments. But other things go on in there. All kinds of interactions and feelings that usually we don't get much of a picture of. You know that old saying, hell is other people? It actually comes from the theater. It comes from a play. No exit. That play was not written by somebody who sits in the orchestra pit. But Jay Caspian Kang has this story about how many musicians in theatrical orchestras might understand the sentiment. We first broadcast this story back in 2020. We are bringing it back today with an update. Here's Jay. Nick Gimo moved to New York in 2006 to try to make it as a musician. He had just finished up college and had all these dreams of playing the trumpet for a living. But it was a struggle. There just aren't many jobs for trumpet players anymore, so he mostly waited by the phone for gigs. Korean megachurch services, experimental plays, and the occasional substitute job with Mary Poppins on Broadway. And then a spot opened up at his favorite show. This might be TMI, but I remember... I was in my apartment. I was on the toilet, and <laughs> <laughs> I got a phone call, and I didn't recognize the number. 
and I listened to the voicemail saying, hi, this is Kristen, and freaked out. This was one of the conductors for Phantom of the Opera. She offered him a job playing shows six days a week and twice on Thursdays and Saturdays. I'm not sure I probably even let her finish her sentence. You know, yes, I'm very interested, <laughs> very interested and available. It was life-changing, really. Did you feel like you had, like, won the lottery? Oh, yes. Actually, I remember the next day I had to go grocery shopping. And I remember, <laughs> I remember buying <laughs> coconut water. I don't know why. That was, like, my treat. Because I always wanted to buy coconut water, but it was always, like, too much of a... It was like, you know what, this is... I just don't need to spend... And I remember buying coconut water and feeling like such a badass. <laughs> and I just felt like I can buy anything here. It wasn't just a steady income Nick was excited about. Phantom of the Opera was a show Nick had loved since he was 11 years old. He had just started playing the trumpet and would lay on his living room floor listening to the music of the night. You know it. Slowly, gently, night unfurls its splendor. That call changed his life. He had finally arrived. Phantom on Broadway. On his first day, Nick entered the Majestic Theater on 46th and 8th Avenue. He walked through a back alley, past a giant tub of dry ice, down a flight of stairs, into a locker room where he changed into all black. He then headed into the pit to play the music he had loved as a child. He had his own seat there now, in a music stand. So he played the first show, next day he went back and played it again, and then again. His brain started to adjust to playing the same show eight times a week. And then he started to notice, it wasn't just the music that repeated itself. You know, I'm seeing the same actors at the exact same time and the same musicians at the exact same time and seeing the same people in the bathroom at the exact same time. <laughs> every, every time one of the dancers comes through to put her wig on, she says to one of the other dancers, um, good job, Erica. Like, every single day. It's very Groundhog Day. At first, this was funny, almost charming. Nick was 30 and the youngest person in the pit, not by a few years, but by a few decades. He'd never been in a situation like this where everyone seemed so locked into routine. His colleagues would sit down in their chairs at the exact same minute every day. There was the cellist who would say, marvelous, every time Nick asked him how he was doing. There was the first horn player who would pull out a stopwatch every single night to time how long the second horn player held a note in one of the songs. Some days it would be 17 seconds, other days 16.2. You definitely start to notice People are talking about each other and complaining about, you know, the same people are late every single week. You know, if you bump into a standby accident, you'll get a, like a, what the f*** are you doing kind of look. Like, take a deep breath, <laughs> you know, like. What, what, what is it like being the, the, the youngest guy there, the young guy? Basically, I'm not as jaded <laughs> as the rest of them. <laughs> you know, if I say anything that's not like, oh, you know, sucks to be here, <laughs> then they're like, yeah, you haven't been here long enough. You're still new, you're still new. You know, people kind of walk in there like, oh, okay, I can't do this again. And some of it's just in their body language, the way they walk in the door, like they're kind of trudging in, you know. Or when someone says, do I have to do this tonight? Phantom of the Opera opened on Broadway in January 1988. It was an instant hit. Everyone who has seen this musical comes away enchanted. The show is virtually guaranteed to run well into the next decade. It did. And then another decade, and another. The musicians of the pit signed contracts with a provision which guaranteed their jobs until the show shut down. They expected two, maybe three years, but the show kept going, as three years turned into five years, which then turned into 32. That's over 13,000 performances. Phantom is now the longest running show in the history of Broadway. There's almost a feeling, I think of nausea, that you have to do it again and you have to do it again. That's Melanie Feld, an oboist who's been in the pit for 28 years now. I don't know how to describe it, a physical sensation that I get, of literally that I'm jumping out of my skin. Like my, it's a leg thing. I can't stand my skin, I'm going crazy. Oh no, that thing is happening. I first heard about the pit at Phantom through a friend whose wife had recently subbed in the violin section. She described what she had seen as a horror show, like waiting for Guffman but 30 hard years down the line. 
I couldn't quite get it out of my head. It's one of the first things people ask. How can you possibly stay sane and play the same music every night? Pete Wright has been playing Phantom since opening night. He's the French horn player who times the notes on a stopwatch every night. You know, there is something in that where you, I would look at the music sometimes and I, it would just look, literally look like shapes. I would just see like, like circles and lines and dots and I would have no idea. I wouldn't even know what page I was on. It's like a disassociative feeling almost like. It's sort of like hearing yourself speak and you don't, and you aren't sure it's English. <laughs> well, that is, I don't think that's ever happened to me, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the funny thing is you see someone else do it and you immediately know what's going on with them. What, what does their face look like? Oh, they're just like, look, they just, it's as if they don't even know where they are. They're like waking up in another room. It's like, what happened? Where am I? <laughs> what day is it? What week is it? <laughs> when I started talking to the pit musicians a couple of years ago, I wanted to know how they found meaning in the mundane and inevitable repetitions of life. In lots of jobs, people do the same thing every day, but nothing quite like this. You're hearing the exact same lines from the stage, playing the exact same notes for the same songs, even the guy sitting next to you breathes in the exact same rhythm. Every day, the Phantom kisses Christine for the first time, and the same chandelier comes crashing down in the same spot on the stage. I assume the orchestra members were like Zen archers who pull back the same bow with the same motion until they die. I talked to a trumpet player named Lowell Hershey. Lowell's been at the show since day one, and everyone says he's the sanest person in the pit and it kind of drives you nuts for the first few weeks. And then after that, your mind deals with it and just flushes it out. So when you're not there, you, you don't think about it. Do you know the words to the songs that you're playing? Uh, no, <laughs> not, not entirely. Where in think the world? Of me, think Where, of me yeah. fondly, yeah. whatever. I mean, I remember one, one time after the show had been running for a while, it, somebody asked me to play a little bit of a tune from the show, and I couldn't even do it. I couldn't even think of one. <laughs> I had submerged it so much. Like your, your brain has like basically just re yeah, yeah, rejected like, being right. cognizant that the music is going on. I think that's typical of people who do shows. What do you think the right type of personality is that can handle this job? I'm descended from a long line of serfs and peons, you know, people who are used to laboring in the fields for for hardly any money and, and are relatively happy with that. The Phantom players aren't exactly serfs. They're well-paid, they play a beloved show, and they get to play in small orchestras on the side. But these are highly trained musicians who went to the fanciest music schools in the world. Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted the best of the best for Phantom, which means the pit will always sound good, though it also creates some creative and spiritual problems for the players who have to get through the score night after night after night. I'm a violin operator. <laughs> Is that how you describe that? That's, that's how I describe it. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's very technical. I have, I have no emotional connection with it. That's a violinist named Kurt Kobel. He's a composer. His dream was always to write scores for horror films. He's now been at Phantom for 22 years, long enough to see three people in a section die. When I'm playing the show, nobody's interested in my creative input. I've often compared it to working in a hospice. You know, it's just, we just keep the show alive as long as we can. So here they all are in this weird social experiment, trapped together for decades, 27 musicians crammed into this tiny space. A trumpet player told me it's like playing in a submarine. I've been down there, and you can barely turn around without knocking into something. In the pit, you notice everything. The way your neighbor blows out a spit valve, the way someone brags about their kids, the smell of someone's perfume. Every little annoyance, every perceived slight, accumulates. One of my favorite stories, which should drive anyone who has ever played in a band crazy. There's this bassoon player who has sat next to the same clarinet player since 1988. She's convinced he plays half a note flat on every note he's ever played. 
Idenai says. The person I talked to the most in the pit was Melanie, the oboist. She's one of the rare people you meet who has no real filter. So I was complaining about something which I imagine was that it was really cold, it's always really cold, and then someone else from the orchestra said, I'm just so tired of the sound of your voice. You know, and I'm tired of the sound of my voice too, so I, I kind of sympathize with her. Then there was a violinist who got mad at me because I said I used Roundup in my garden. She said, and she wouldn't speak to me for like, I don't know, weeks. During most of our talks, Melanie was making reeds. It's an extraordinarily meticulous process. There's all sorts of medieval-looking tools and tiny bits of wood everywhere. Oboists are the most optimistic people in the world because every time they make a reed, they think that it might work. They usually don't, but anyway. This part, I, oh no, I'm skipping the most important part. You need to pick your color of thread. And it just makes all the difference, and I never know what color to pick. But this is the only fun that I have, so. <laughs> that god-awful noise. Melanie studied at Juilliard. She dreamed of being the principal oboist in the Metropolitan Opera or the Philharmonic. But she kept bombing her auditions. Her nerves got the best of her every time she was up for a big seat. And then life and bills intervened. Phantom in that way is a very good job, in a field where there aren't a lot of good jobs anymore. It put Melanie's kids through college, paid her mortgage, and provided security while the music industry collapsed around her. But at the end of 30 years sitting just inches away from your coworkers, you lose all sense of proportion. Your enemies turn into monsters. For Melanie, the monster in the pit was always a trumpet player named Francis Bonney. Everything he did drove Melanie nuts, from the black biking shorts he wore in the pit to always eating his dinner in the locker room with his back turned to her. Francis was the miserable son of a bitch. And at a certain point, he started wearing, like he put this black like shade on the side of his glasses. And he's wearing those things because he doesn't want to see me, right? That's why he's wearing, I, I really truly believe this. I wanted to run this all by Francis. It just seems so unreasonable. Francis is the only person I had talked to who had actually escaped from the pit. He got in a truck and drove out to the middle of nowhere in Colorado. He says he's much happier now. You spoke with Melanie. Oh. Yeah, yeah, we did. I understand that you two did not have the best relationship. <laughs> One of the things that she told us was that, that you, you basically made an eye patch so that you wouldn't have to look at her. Is, is this a true story that she's telling us? I did do that at some point, but that wasn't just because of Melanie. Uh, she's taking it too personally. It was actually anybody that was on my right. <laughs> <laughs> she told us for a long time that you sat in the locker room and that you would turn your back to everybody because you didn't want to look at them. Yeah, yeah, I was in the <laughs> locker room. I came there, I ate my dinner, looked at the white wall, went in, played the show, and then left the theater, left the premises as fast as I could, and um, it worked beautifully. Can you compare the relationships that you have with other relationships? It's family. <laughs> it's a spouse you can't stand. And uh, putting up with people that you just don't want to hear their voice again, you sit there thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. This is like a quarter of a lifetime. The musicians in the pit don't play the whole time, which means there are thousands of hours where they're not actually doing anything. And during those rests, they read books, spy thrillers and mysteries, and do the crossword with their neighbors. A trumpet player has taught himself three languages. Another musician ran a woodshop business on his laptop during the show. And socially, it's a bit like middle school. There are the loners, the jocks, and the French horns. They're like the boys in the back of the bus. They bring in fart machines and run the same practical jokes over and over. Sometimes they even mess with the audience. The front row is right up against the pit, so close that their feet sometimes dangle next to the musicians' heads. Occasionally, one of the French horn players would take out a bottle of whiteout and write little messages on the soles of the audience's shoes. Those guys, they're sitting right behind me, they're always chattering and laughing. I, being me, if I play badly, I think, oh God, they're saying how terrible I am. Oh God, I don't want to humiliate myself. This, more than anything, Melanie told me, is what makes her want to sound good every night. She's worried the French horn guys will make fun of her. 
I'm not playing for the audience because the audience doesn't. And so I'm playing for those French horn players. I do want to say um, one of the compliments I've gotten over the years is, um, how do you still play so well when you've just been doing Phantom for all those years? I say, it's a choice that I've made. My choice is to play this music like it's any other music that I play and, and make it beautiful. Can you just play something from Phantom? Well, I can play the really hard ones. If it's really bad, though, I beg you not to. During the pandemic, like the rest of Broadway, Phantom shut down. The Unstoppable show was put on pause for a year and a half. I checked in with Melanie during that break. She wasn't doing very well. She wasn't getting paid by the show. And she missed Phantom. This was surprising to me. Melanie and all the other musicians had told me about their fantasies of finally leaving the show, and I had believed them. But now that it actually happened, she missed a routine. You know, Phantom, I miss the, the comradeship. You know, the repetition of the silly jokes and watching everyone eat and, I don't know, the routine. I kind of like routine in my life. This, of course, is the opposite of what she'd said in the past, before COVID. It, it was always easy to complain that it was boring and to complain about driving into the city and wasting all that time in the car and, you know playing the same music and going home again. And, and I just thought, I knew I was lucky back then, but it becomes very real now. I mean, what can I say? Now I really know what it's like not having this job. You know, I, it's just so much fun to complain about things that don't matter. Oh, the women in the bathroom, they were just always talking about their expensive hair and makeup. And I, I miss the women in the bathroom. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'd be happy to complain about that again. Before the pandemic, every time I talked to Melanie, I would ask how she was doing. Her answer always depended on parking. It's hard to park in Midtown Manhattan. A good parking spot was a good day. A bad parking spot was a bad day. This is how she made sense of her life. I think about this all the time. Most of our lives are spent finding parking for the job we don't want to do. Melanie's not alone in that. And after any number of years, those routines accumulate and that's more or less your life. Of all the people I talked to in the pit, one musician dealt with the mundane and inevitable repetition of life in a way that really stuck with me. For the past two decades in the pit, Kurt, the musician who described himself as a violin operator, has been dreaming up the most elaborate and metaphorically perfect coping mechanism it's a band made up entirely of automatons. I met these robot musicians in a warehouse in Yonkers. The Pam Band. The Pam Band stands for Partially Artificial Musicians. Kurt's automatons are made up of scraps of metal and string all wired up to a soundboard that Kurt can program to create whatever sounds he wants. There's Magnus, an electrochord organ, Krieg, the bass guitar, and then there's Rosie, the theremin. This is Jack, a solid body electric violin using the exoskeleton design. This is what helps uh, alleviate the boredom of the redundancy of Phantom because um, I'm constantly thinking about this project and how I can improve the automation and the kind of music that I would like to create. <laughs> Why did you decide to do this? Uh, if I ever see a therapist, maybe they will help me understand oh, this. Pretend I'm a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> like, was there part of it where you're like, man, I am playing in this orchestra. I'm not, you know, it's not the expressiveness that I want. I also kind of feel like an automaton, you know, and maybe I'll just make an automaton as sure. a violinist. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can see exploring that Am I looking for some kind of soul healing from this dehumanization of being in a violin section? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs>
I asked Kurt if the Pam Band could play the music of the night or All I Ask of You or any of the Phantom classics. He wasn't into that at all. This band was not designed to play Andrew Lloyd Webber. But something inside him just couldn't get away from Phantom of the Opera. Back when he was sitting in the pit, he'd composed, just in his head, both the prequel and the sequel to Phantom, both which involve Indiana Jones-type characters. And years ago, he got a copy of the 1925 silent film version of Phantom and wrote an entire score. He wanted to play it for me. He turned off the lights in the warehouse and projected the film onto the wall. The Pam Band started to play. The score features him, Kurt, as the solo violinist and the star of the show. The automatons all play the same thing, but Kurt always improvises. None of his shows are ever the same. Jay Caspian Kang. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker and co-host of the podcast Time to Say Goodbye. The story was produced by Nikki Meek. So we uh, first broadcast that story three years ago. And now, the decades of repetition in the Phantom of the Opera pit are finally coming to an end. After 35 years, the longest-running show in Broadway history is closing this week. Curious uh, how the musicians in the pit were taking the news, Jay caught up with Melanie, the oboe player, when she just had four shows left to play. Jay asked about uh, the moment when everybody who works on the show heard definitively during a big Zoom meeting, actually, that the show was finally closing. What was your first thought? Because I remember that we had talked about it and you sort of, you and, and Lowell and Pete had all sort of fantasized about it. Because I asked you about yeah. this a lot, just like, what, what are you going to, like, when you leave, like, how's it going to feel? Right. And so, like, how did it actually feel? Like, because you finally got confirmation that okay this is actually going to end so the first thing is you, know, you have that the dropping of your gut into the cellar kind of feeling of shock just complete shock like the bottom is falling out of my world kind of feeling i was upset so um what i do i said i don't want to be sad so i will be angry let's choose anger and i said i'm going to focus on all the things i hate and that way i won't be sad and so that's what i did so, well, did, did it work? Like, did it work? Yeah. To, I was so successful. To just focus on everything you hate instead yeah. of, you know, whatever feelings of sadness or yeah. regret or even, uh, you know, fear that might have popped up? No, this is at the beginning. Okay. So right. I was so good, right? I was so successful. Um, now that it's imminent, I do feel different. So um, now it's much more of a roller coaster up and down. Right now there's all kinds of exciting activities going on, and then you can sort of forget that it's closing. I am certainly sad about it. It's an entire way of life. Um, I, I can't even really imagine knowing it will never be back, but most of those people I'm never going to see again. Are people being nicer to one another mm-hmm. in the pit? Thank you for asking. <laughs> people are being so nice. I'm trying to be quieter about things that annoy me. But fewer things are annoying me, and it's all very festive and fun. We had a really fun <laughs> photo op on Friday. We, they had a full company photo call. So I really enjoyed it because everybody was up on stage. They all gave us a poster, and everyone's getting their posters signed, like your high school yearbook. And You know, when I first interviewed you several years ago, one of the things that you told me that you know made me laugh a lot was that you, after playing 20-something years at the time of the show, had never actually seen the show, right? And that sort of blew my mind because I was like, how you, you go every <laughs> night, you know? Like, like, you've never actually seen the show? Yeah. Um, so I realized that I really wanted to see the show, and I asked the management, and they set me up at the soundboard. And it was wonderful. This is just last week, I think. And what, what amazed me was the pageantry of it, the beauty of it. I had no idea. You see them bringing in all the ice backstage, outside of the stage door every day. So there's a giant ice container, the dry ice, and then they carry it in. And then, and then we used to complain about the, the smoke. But I never knew what the smoke did. And it, so it creates this incredible atmosphere. And then there's all these lights. Like we see the candelabra under the stage, but they're not lit under the stage. And so I got to see them 
on the stage. And I got to see the Phantom and Christine at the end of, I, I don't know which number it was, but they just disappear. I mean, it's a trap door, but it, the, you have the fact that they're just disappearing. And I feel like a, a little kid in a way, just awestruck by all these things that other people have seen so many times. Eleven people who were going to be in the pit closing night are musicians who were there on opening night back in 1988. I was able to reach Lowell Hershey, who, as Jay pointed out in the story, everybody calls the sanest person in the pit. Like Melanie, Lowell has other gigs lined up for After Phantom Closes here and there. Nothing big, nothing too challenging. Neither of them imagines playing for another Broadway show, either as a sub or as a regular player. Lowell, I have to say, was very chill about the closing. You know, I can't say that I didn't enjoy going to work. I, I did. It's fun for me to do that, and so I will miss that. But, you know, I, I think I can find other things that will interest me. I, I don't feel like I'll be bored. How old were you on the first opening night? Uh, I was 40. Can I ask you to, to go back and imagine uh, for a second 40-year-old you on the opening night of Phantom if you could somehow have said to him, you will be here for 35 years and you'll be here on closing night of this show, what would that 40-year-old have said? Uh, well, I would have been really happy to have heard that because at, at the time Phantom opened, I had a 11 and a 13-year-old. I had two kids and college was coming up. And if you told me that Phantom was gonna go more than just a few years, and go 35, I would have been thrilled because that would have meant that uh, I would have some security. So yeah, I would have been very happy to have that information. Coming up, a mom goes underground, goes undercover to get an urgent message to her daughter. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, What Lies Beneath, stories of things and people, usually hidden from view, coming to the surface. We've arrived at Act Two of our program, Act Two, How I Met My Mother. So in some families, what's buried deep below are the true feelings people have about one another. There's so many people out there who have trouble saying directly what they really feel. One of the producers here at our show, Elna Baker, comes from a long line of passive-aggressive communicators. By the way, they know this, they own it. When her grandmother uh, wanted to get a message across, a message like, don't leave change lying around, one time she put an article on the fridge saying, toddler chokes on penny, and then just left it to everybody else to connect the dots. And his mother communicates in the same indirect way, which became a problem in the years after Elna left the church. Elna's family's Mormon. And her mom had some important things that she wanted to say to her. Here's Elna. This all started when I made a joke about me buying weed to my brother. Careful, he said. If mom were to hear that, she'd send an email to the whole family about how you're an addict. I laughed. And then I was like, wait, what? That was way too specific. Did mom send an email to the whole family about me being an addict? And he was like, uh, mm, nothing, never mind. Which could only mean one thing. She did. It took several rounds of questioning before I got the whole story. The email he was referencing, my mom had sent it 10 years ago. At the time, I was about to host a comedy show in New York where me and a bunch of performers would play drinking games on stage. It was called The Drunk Show. The show was being promoted online. My mom, a devout Mormon, saw an article about it and freaked out. Mormons don't drink. It's against the religion. And what I learned from my brother, years after the fact, is that my mom was so worried that I was doing this show, she sent an email to my family, my extended family, uncles, cousins, and family friends who I grew up with, like the Mitchells, the Coxes, Heidi, my middle school drama teacher. Dear friends, it begins. I am writing because I am concerned about the direction Elma's life has turned. She is spiraling downward fast. My mom then explains to them that I'm doing this event called The Drunk Show, then writes, I am very concerned. In our family, you are either an alcoholic or a Mormon. 
and I think she may be headed in the wrong direction. I don't know what I can do personally. She doesn't hear me. I'm going to interject here that I didn't hear her because she never said anything to me about it. In the email, she inserts a link to the article about the drunk show and then reveals her grandmaster plan. She's been commenting on the article under fake names, warning me not to do the show. Can everyone else please make up fake accounts and also comment? This way, I'll cancel the show. She ends, thanks. Pray for us both, please. When I read this email, I was mortified. I drink socially. I'm not an alcoholic. But since I'd never intercepted the email, I worried everyone who got it had thought this for years. I immediately clicked on the link to the article. At the bottom of the page, there were four comments from four different people trolling me, all clearly my mother. Her first fake character is Carol from the West Village, who says, quote, encouraging irresponsible drinking that could end in hospitalization of performers is an invitation to a lawsuit. Don't be idiots. The three other comments escalate from there. Here's the weirdest part. She wrote all these comments while she was staying with me. She was in town the week of the drunk show. We slept in the same bed. But she didn't say a word to me about it. As interventions go, it was the least successful one I've ever heard of or could imagine. No one else among the family or friends chimed in. And I, the target of the intervention, never knew it happened. I never heard of or read the comments online until my brother accidentally let it slip years later. Since I found out about this, I've wondered why my mom chose to communicate this message to me the way she did. But I've never asked her, because I figured it would just lead to a fight and no answers. But we're much closer now than we were when I did the drunk show. Why not try? To my surprise, she agreed to talk about it, but on these conditions. Dad had to be there in case we needed mediation. I had to come home for Christmas in exchange. And most importantly, I could only do this story if she got to write the ending, which we'll get to later. Uh, talk for a second. Hi, Alma. How are you? Wow, Mom, you got sexy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Mom. I'm, I'm trying out a lower voice because I think my voice is too screechy. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't spend the whole interview not being yourself. We started at the beginning. How did my mother decide that anonymous comments online would be the best way to reach me? She said my sister Julia told her about the drunk show. So I'm laying there on the couch. I'm at your apartment, probably about five in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm stewing over this. I can't sleep. haven't slept for hours. And then uh, I just had this little epiphany. I can put this on here in somebody else's voice. I don't have to use my own voice. And then maybe she'll take it seriously. You just need to hear it from New Yorkers. Why? <laughs> Come on, Elna. You're from New York. You live in New York. And you value their opinions. More than yours. Oh, absolutely. Because I'm, you know, this fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned Mormon lady that doesn't know anything. You know, I'm like from 1950, I'm like June Cleaver. Are you saying that you are like that or that I think you think I think that? That's what I think you think I am, yeah. Before things get too tense... My mom and I pull up the comments page together. Okay, so now let's look at these people. The first thing I learned was how fleshed out these people were in my mom's mind. Like Carol from the West Village, who warned that irresponsible drinking could lead to lawsuits. She's a lawyer? Because that's the way a lawyer would say things, isn't it? Okay. She's dealt with lawsuits that have involved uh, drunk drivers or um, something with alcoholism involved, right? To be clear, nowhere in the comments does it say Carol is a lawyer. For each entry, there's just a name and location. Like Don from the Upper West Side. Pretty ritzy area, right? Mm. Who's Don in your mind? Don is a, a comedian. Oh, okay. Who's older. He used to do kind of the old-style comedy. Again, reading the comments, you'd never know Don was a comedian. Yeah, he's... Just disgusted with how comedy has uh, evolved in the last 15 years or so. What does Don think about me doing this show? He says, comedy, where you are laughing at the performers and not with the performers, is not comedy. 
It is tragedy. Is this really what NYC comedy is reduced to? Are you really not cleverer than this? Why did you think, like, Don saying this to me would would reach me? Well, you love comedians. I mean, it's all about the comedy for you. Mm-hmm. So, of course, if this is not going to be funny, then uh, maybe we shouldn't do this. The next comment comes from the East Village, from a commenter named Please. Okay, so I'm thinking this is a, uh, a policeman. And his name is Please? Yeah, Officer Please. It doesn't say Officer Mom. <laughs> Why is this policeman writing me? Why is he so offended by this show? Well, he says, 10 years after 9-11, and this is where New York is? Come on. The show is on September 17th. I think this week, of all weeks, we should all be a little more sensitive and full of introspection. Okay. Um, Can we just... I think we can both agree that you you went real big on this one. I hit the 9-11 button. Her last comment is a straight-up Mormon talking point. Alcoholism and all other addictions take away freedom of choice. Seven minutes after she posted that, she sent the mass email. My mom said she went so hard because... So I have two uncles who died of alcoholism poisoning. My uncle died at age 30. My other uncle came to my wedding completely drunk and ended up dead about two years later from alcoholism. Gary's grandfather died of alcoholism. So that's how I get there. It's not like it's a Mormon thing. It's uh, an experience that has affected uh, me. It affected my mother. She was just devastated over her uh, brother and his alcoholism. Stopping the drunk show meant stopping me from becoming one of these people. My mom says she saw the promo photo of me sipping a drink on the page announcing the show and thought, Has she lost her mind? She has relatives who died of alcoholism. She's been taught since she was a little girl to be careful around alcohol. Has she completely blocked out everything I've ever taught her? Did you ever consider just calling me? Elna, <laughs> we've already been there. You don't hear me. You just don't hear me. It's just a joke. You have to hear it from somebody who you think is credible. Come on, admit it, Elna. You know you would have just laughed. You would have called Kevin, you would have had a good laugh, and you would have had the show anyway. But you didn't. The thing. Come on, admit it. Wait. You know it. You know you would have rolled your eyes at me. But you didn't even try. Alma, just just tell me. What's the truth on your end? Well, I don't think I... Here's the thing. I, I think if, if um, you just told me not to do it, I would, have, uh, I would have done exactly what you're saying. But if we'd had a full conversation where we really talked... like I, So, for example, I didn't know until just now until we've had this conversation. Like, I didn't really know that much about your family history with drinking. You don't talk about these unpleasant things. So that, like, when you're so against drinking, I I think I did think it was just had to do with Mormonism and not that it had to do with, like, really painful things you witnessed in your life because you never told me about them. I'm sure I've said this statement before in your life. In our family, you're either... Uh, Mormon or an alcoholic. Alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you I heard know. that one before. Yeah, I just didn't believe it. She'd said this to me all my life, but I was missing the context. I've never met any of these family members who drank. I don't remember her ever mentioning any of these stories. I saw my mother as sheltered. Almost all her friends are Mormon. I just thought, she doesn't know what she's talking about, which was unfair. When I make a radio story, I listen to my interviews over and over again. And this time, something unusual started to happen. 
With each listen, my mother sounded less and less like my mother. Like, I stopped hearing her the way I usually do, rolling my eyes, getting defensive. And I actually started to hear what she had to say. This is the line that struck me the hardest. Alma, <laughs> we've already been there. You don't hear me. She's right. And I can hear in her voice that this has been hurting her feelings for years. And that's my fault. I see why she thinks it's hopeless to talk to me about drinking. About anything. I'm incredibly dismissive. That's my part in this. And her part, she was totally upfront about that. She didn't want to confront me about drinking because she has so much trouble with confrontation of any kind. With anyone. Going back to when she was young. I mean, as a little kid, I used to... Um, just admit fault to anything that happened in our family in order to get the confrontation to be over with. I never understood before this conversation what that feels like for her. She panics, feels trapped, like she needs to run, tightness in her chest, which is what makes this conversation so hard. It's just what we're doing exactly what I hate to do. What? Talk about conflict. <laughs> So what's happening to you when we do it? Um, well, let's see. I'm twiddling my thumbs, right? I'm feeling uh, my neck turn to stone. This cord, which is already coiled up, has been triple coiled <laughs> <laughs> for the headphones. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you for uh, putting yourself in your most uncomfortable place. Sure, you're welcome, Elna. Anything for my daughter. I knew what this meant. From the tone of her voice, it was time to stop. This was the most direct conversation I've ever had with my mother, and the longest real conversation we've ever had. She'd gone above and beyond and did something she did not enjoy for me. I could return the favor and call it a day. Well, folks, my ticket home for Christmas is booked. And now for the ending my mother requested. It comes down to three words. She was right. Not about me spiraling downward fast, but about the drunk show. For the record, the drunk show was a disaster. I was the one who organized the drinking games, but because I'd only recently left the church, I was brand new to drinking. And all the penalties in the games were things like take four shots of whiskey. Things went off the rails quickly. A performer threw a chair at an audience member. I drunk dialed my ex from the stage, and the call went so badly that I started crying in front of the audience. Ira, who was in the show, got blackout drunk. For the first time in his life, he said. And then threw up into a trash bag. And someone ended up in the hospital. My mom knew none of those details, of course. But big picture, Carol from the West Village knew what she was talking about when she said irresponsible drinking can lead to hospitalization. In other words, mom was right. Nona Baker is one of the producers of our show and the author of the book The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. Isn't that what they say? Just under the surface, it's all still in play. Better have your bag of money when the piper comes for pay. Just under the surface, never far away. World Program was produced today by Aviva de Kornfeld and Lena Masitzis. The people who put together today's rerun include Ella Mustafa, Stone Nelson, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can hear over 700 episodes of our program for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, we're talking the other day, and he let slip. He has not been listening to our program for weeks. Weeks. I was like, What? Totally confronted him about it. And I don't know. I guess I had a good reason. <sighs> Just so tired of the sound of your voice. 
I'm Ira Glass. Back next week. I told Tori, I get it. You know, and I'm tired of the sound of my voice too, so I, I kind of sympathize with